Take off the garment of your sorrow and affliction, O Jerusalem, and put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. Put on the robe of the righteousness from God. Put on your head the diadem of the glory of the everlasting. From the book of Baruch, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today, we arrive at the second theme of Advent. Having pondered the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus, we are drawn to consider true repentance in the light of the gospel, in the light of the God who comes to us in Jesus. We human beings are a people marked by the confusion and disruption of sin. In the beginning, we read in Scripture, it was not so. Man and woman in the garden knew that God knew the Lord their God. They walked with him. They knew him personally. They knew each other. They experienced great harmony in the good creation which the Lord had entrusted to them. But with sin came disruption and alienation, finally culminating in death. We know the story all too well. The man and the woman eat at the, suge at the suggestion of the serpent from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They shun the tree of life, shunning the commandment of God in their pride. And for this, they immediately experience alienation. They are alienated from God. In fact, the first thing they do is hide themselves from his presence. They are alienated from each other. They know immediately of their nakedness. They experience shame at the very sight of each other. Where before the woman had been understood to be bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh, now the woman is other. She is a mystery. She is foreign. And the husband is foreign and a mystery to his wife. Human life cannot return of its own accord to the way things were before. We can't just simply take off all our clothes here today and expect that we'll go back to the way it was. The church's teaching on original sin is that once sin infects human life, we cannot act adequately to extract it. In short, we are dying from a terminal disease called sin, which we are powerless to cure. Sin leaves us in deep sorrow, a kind of sorrow which cannot be adequately described in words. This sorrow is much more intuitive. We know that there is something wrong with us even if we cannot describe it. I remember some years ago, I was out grilling something in my backyard, and when I came inside to grab a spatula or salt and pepper, I don't remember what it was, I saw a trail of blood from the kitchen to our back bedroom, little drops of blood, about every five or six inches. And Ella, my wife, called out to me, go get your son. So I followed the trail of blood droplets to find my not-yet-two-year-old son standing there in our bathroom, sobbing. At some point, something sharp had been dropped on his foot, and he looked up at me with tears, unable to say the only thing he could possibly be thinking, which I don't know what a two-year-old would say, but I know what I think he was thinking, which was, am I going to die? He knew what we all know, that our life is frail, that there is something wrong with us at a fundamental level, that our bodies are not dependable. They will disappoint us over and over and over again. We know this disruption all too well, 
But as we age, we try to ignore it. And in fact, our culture is happy to try to ignore it as much as possible to complete insanity. We think that we can prolong ourselves, that we can avoid the unavoidable death, or even that we can avoid sorrow if only we can keep ourselves fit enough, wealthy enough, respected enough, conform to our own understandings of our identity enough. But it is all an illusion. We are a people afflicted by sin, a people who in attempting to cover over our diseased state can only muster the fig leaves of our own works. Our death is a certainty. Our alienation from God and from each other is unavoidable. Our need for a redemption wholly foreign to our sinful state is made apparent from the day of our birth, when we are helpless, when we cry, when we are completely dependent upon our parents. I was thinking of this recently. Did you ever watch Discovery Channel as a kid? I always loved watching the birth of safari animals like deer and wildebeests. They're born, and what do they do immediately? They get up and walk. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And it takes us how long? Sometimes as long as 16 months to walk. We are dependent. We cannot cure ourselves. In a sense, we know how we should be. We know, at least in part, what life would be like if we were not in this sinful state. And yet we continue on in this sorrow and affliction. We are like St. Paul who writes to the Romans, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. We find that we become a mystery even to our own selves. One could be forgiven for assuming that God would be justified in throwing us all into the cosmic garbage can. But we can know and know resolutely that this would be in violation of God's nature because it is a thing which he has not done. We read in Scripture that God desires for all to be saved. And there is a glimmer of hope, even in the very seconds following that fall from grace. God does not stay away. He does not stay back. But he presents himself in the garden for his afternoon walk. And he says to Adam and to Eve, where are you? He knows where they are. They're hiding somewhere behind some bushes. He does not ask for his own benefit, but for theirs. It is a glimmer of the hope of the gospel in the very opening chapters of Holy Scripture. In it, we see the very character of God, one who has not given up on his people, but not because we're so good, but rather because God's love is positively and absolutely relentless. When he has determined that he will love humanity, he will not stop. He will not be hidden from. He will not stop pouring grace upon grace upon us. The first thing that we see is Adam's admission of his fear. Perhaps you could also say his sorrow at his own sin. He says this to God. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Hear that. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. God, knowing his fear, asks him two questions. And the first reveals that he knows the source of man's temptation cannot arise within him. And he asks this, who told you that you were naked? It couldn't have been you. You weren't created to know that. And yet he does. 
Adam could not possibly, in his innocence, have suggested this fact to himself. It must be something foreign to him. There's something to file away for later, but it's that man's awareness of his nakedness does not arise from within himself, and therefore his solution will never go deep enough. It will never counter the terror that he feels, the fear that he feels. Secondly, God asks, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This question shows that this knowledge of nakedness, this sorrow, this fear, could only possibly have arisen from disobedience. God has given everything needed and then some into the hands of his most beloved creation. Man and woman have been given dominion over every animal, use of every tree, except for one. And we see that though now clothed in fig leaves, they are actually clothed in confusion. They're clothed in irrationality. And then, of course, because they're clothed in irrationality, the man blames the woman, which is always irrational. His confusion has, as a result, that he does not easily accept his condemnation for sin. He does not readily admit his fault. And Eve blames the serpent. She doesn't accept her fault either, not totally. Their admission is only partial, showing a small glimmer of contrition with one word in the Hebrew and two in English, I ate. That's all I did, I just ate. And this, by the way, is the first step in repentance, isn't it? To own one's fault by simply saying, I did it, it was me. C.S. Lewis once wrote that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Yes, we must surrender. We must wave the white flag, put down the weapons of self-defense and self-delusion, and unconditionally surrender to the flames of divine love. We read that following a curse for the serpent and a curse for the woman and a curse for the man, that God takes these fig-leaved garments... I love how the King James puts it, aprons. And he clothes the man and his wife with skins. The church fathers loved this fact. Augustine says of this that the skins are a kind of paradox. They represent at, at once man's continued glory, which must be covered to protect what innocence he has left. But it is also a reminder that he has turned into a beast to his disgrace. He is both glorious and disgraceful. Gregory Nyssa says that these skins are disruptions of the harmony of human life. He calls them irrational skins, marking the bodily disharmony that we all face, which it's funny to mention it. His reckoning, this disharmony includes dirt, childbearing, lactation, evacuation, old age, disease, and finally death. Now, perhaps he was a bit harsh about the grossness of the body, but we must be honest about the sheepishness with which we approach the body, our irrational response to our own functions as well as our bodily dysfunctions. We know in a very real way that our bodies were meant for a greater life, a body which reflects the radiance of redemption. And we yearn for this, and we are always mired in sorrow that it has not yet come and the affliction which comes from a body that does not work the way it should. 
But here, friends, this morning what we read in Baruch, think about what we hear of John the Baptist, who says, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Baruch offers us this wonderful hope. Take off the garment of your sorrow and affliction, O Jerusalem, and put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. Put it on. Put on the robe of righteousness from God. Put on your head the diadem of the glory of the everlasting. The gospel is simply this, that when we unclothe ourselves in, 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 in terror and in sin and disobedience, What Jesus Christ puts on offer is a greater garment than the skin of any animal. To be clothed with himself. To be clothed with the garments of a renewed humanity, with the beauty of the glory of God, a robe of righteousness, a crown of glory. And this clothing, these garments are always undeserved, always won, not by striving, but by God's grace. They are a gift. And this is what Paul means when he writes to the Galatians. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's talking about clothes. You have put on Christ. And as well to the Romans, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We are always and continually tempted to clothe ourselves to be content with fig leaves, both in our desire to paper over the disaster of sin and sometimes worse, to rely upon ourselves for our life, for our well-being, for our food, for our clothing, for our shelter. We express so much anxiety because we believe that at the end of the day, we are responsible for our own welfare. We think that by worrying, we can add length to our lives. We think that by applying our minds and wills to self-improvement that we can avoid God's righteous judgment and all of this is a lie. It's not just a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It is little more than the perpetuation of the fall by the continual deceit of Satan who desires that we know as little of the truth about ourselves as possible. This is the power of John the Baptist's witness in the wilderness. He comes wearing the skins of wild animals, the irrational skins, as a prophetic prop to show that he, the last of the prophets, is as much a sinner as Adam and only partially clothed. He eats what he has scavenged, the carcasses of locusts and wild honey. Every time I imagine John the Baptist, I can't help but imagine him with a face full of bee stings. He must have looked ghastly. But the honesty clearly had its effect. To see John was to see the frailty of fallen human nature up close. Grotesque in one sense, but also beautiful. To see just how grotesque we human beings have become, but also how glorious. I love what Blaise Pascal says, we are the garbage and glory of the universe. And John shows this up close. The best of Eastern Orthodox iconography for John the Baptist shows this ultimate paradox. He is a man with wild, unkept hair, and in many cases, he's holding his own head in a basket. He often holds a simple, thin cross, often with two serpent-like figures proceeding from the pole. I'll let you think about the typology for that for a minute. And yet he is 
by the power of that cross, one who gains the other end of the paradoxical image, not of a wild man clothed in skins, but of an angel. We see that he has angelic wings and that he holds a scroll with his own words written on it, repent for the kingdom of God is near. John's role in scripture is that of a friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, That of making sure that the bride is prepared for her husband, that she remains pure to the the day of her wedding. And he makes sure that the church is nourished by a diet of repentance and grace for a future redemption in which the redeemed will be greater even than the angels. And John calls out to us today, repent. Lay down your arms at the foot of the cross. Put on the robe of righteousness from God. Put on your head the diadem of the glory of the everlasting. Repentance comes to the fore in Advent because it is the repentant who have been made ready to receive the coming of Jesus. It takes knowing our alienation, knowing our irrational skins, knowing our sin up close and disavowing ourselves of it. but it also takes the embrace of a new life. A new life given to us in Jesus to be clothed in him, to be clothed in glory. It is by receiving his grace, by receiving his glory, that we prepare for his coming again. And at that coming, may we be clothed in every glory God has to give. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.